0: Good morning everyone, today is Wednesday the 12th of December and you are listening to 3CR Community Radio, I'm Will,
2: and I'm Judith,
0: and I'm Dean. Good morning everyone, how are we? Yeah,
2: good. And Idwin's here in spirit, I'm sure. Yes, (laughs) for Idwin's
0: homesick, and so thank you so much for helping us set up one of those interviews, Idwin. hope you rest up well um we have been alive for the last seven days and things have happened yeah that was a very awkward way of me asking how have you been
2: (laughs) (laughs) very very good thanks looking forward to um you know the last couple of weeks of our show and getting over the christmas period and um yeah looking forward to just having a bit of a relax and coming back refreshed next uh year to Mm. kick on wednesday breakfast and you guys
3: yeah, well I'm I'm heading for my son's birthday up in Sydney, Ooh. so that's going to be exciting for me. Alright, alright. Yeah. Okay.
0: That's gonna be quite cool. I'm heading up for my sister's birth giving Oh I don't know, what do you call that?
3: I don't know. Her she's, she's her about baby to having. having. She's about to have a child.
0: She's about to pop one out. Um oh but my I'm God. I'm not sure. What do you call that? It's not a birthday. Yeah. It's the other end. <laughs> um but yeah, that's that's happening. I'm very excited. So yeah. that'll be really nice going up to it be Sydney. Will
3: your first uh, niece and nephew?
0: Yes. Well, my first direct niece and nephew. I've got many, 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 many cousins, oh, um, I see. and they've okay. all had kids apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Every every day a new child. It seems. Yeah. <laughs> yes. it <was> very <laughs> so I'm direct. getting those yeah. kinds
3: of messages from Canada actually too. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's always exciting.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, oh, I saw Robin DiAngelo's, um Speech and uh, and there was a panel discussion afterwards um, at the Wheeler Center last night. Very interesting. Crystallized a lot of thoughts about white fragility, which is also the title of her book that she was speaking. Oh, I don't know if she was speaking the book, but there was based off of the book a lot of the um, the the stuff that she was saying last night. Um, And you know, a really interesting. Have you bought
3: the book? Did it stimulate you to go out and buy the book? It's actually it's
0: actually sold out. Oh,
3: really? Um, So I wasn't
0: able to buy the book. Um, They still have it. Um online like you know, the electronic copies, but oh, I gotta like, yes. hold the thing, you know? Yeah. I'm
3: like- that yeah. too. I, I like lying in bed with that book in my hand. <laughs> Besides, we spend so much time looking at screens. Yeah. You know? mm. I, I just, uh, anything that can stop me looking at a screen, I like it. Mm.
0: To be 100% honest, though, I like um, buying the book and then having it sit on a table <laughs> and then accrue a very a very healthy layer of dust. <laughs> yeah. um, were, I'm a bad reader. You were
3: describing my bedside <laughs> table. I remember someone visiting yeah. me and seeing his wrote yeah. seven books. The intention. When
0: was well, the last time you put good something good to down?
2: Start? Hmm? It's good to it's good to start, you know, because you can always finish it. <laughs> yeah. you, you might read the first three chapters yeah. and go, "Yeah, I like it. I'll be back to it." Start yeah. another one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'd be good to finish one though. Go on. yeah. um, so ahead. I always
3: finish. I always finish. Oh, No, I. It takes a while, but no, I don't. No, I'm terrible. This huh? is why I probably don't read as much as I should. Because once I start. I'll stay up till four in the morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I right, find out right. what
2: happened. You, you have to learn how to speed read.
0: And oh, you stayed it. up to three in the morning last oh, night editing our last interview.
3: Just about.
0: Interview. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk about what's happening on the show tonight? what
3: a good idea. So, that yeah. last interview, let's just start with that last interview. Yeah, it's yeah. John Garrick, um, Dr. John Garrick. And uh, he's from Charles Darwin University. And he's going to be talking to us about um, the Chinese lease. Or uh, the lease up by a Chinese company of Darwin Port. Mm. And uh, so that's very interesting, and all the, the politics that goes with that. And uh, before that, we'll be speaking with uh, Peter Owen just around eight o'clock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Peter Owen from the Wilden- Australian Wilderness Society from the South Australia branch. Mm. He's going to talk about plans to drill in the Great Australian Bight and uh, the campaign uh, to prevent that happening. Mm. And uh, then we have Shirley Winton um, from IPAN, the uh, independent and peaceful Australian network. So mm. she's going to do a bit of a year, you know, what they've been doing this year mm-hmm. and plans for next year.
0: Year in review, plans yeah. for next year.
3: Yeah, Very we're doing exciting. a bit of year in review today.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and um, at 7.35 we'll have the Terebin Council Mayor, um, Councillor Susan Rennie, talking about the council's electronic gaming policy. And this is, a, I guess, a move to um, make sure that they're not going to support um, clubs who rely on um, EGMs, electronic gaming machines, so gambling, essentially. Mm. Um, they've introduced a policy for sporting clubs to say that they're not going to support that because of the harmful effects on community.
3: That's so important.
2: Mm. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, and I think just before that, yeah. We will have mm-hmm. Greg, Greg Denham. Yeah, he's going to yeah. join us
3: in the studio. Yeah. And it's interesting because there are links between gambling and, and uh, drug dependence, uh, you know. Yeah. And But he's not specifically talking yeah. about dependence. He's going to talk about, um, you know, drug policy generally. Mm. Again, a, a review of what's been what's happened this year mm-hmm. and then what mm, people are hoping for for next year. It's, it's been a big year for mm. drug policy. So just mm-hmm. to
0: recap, we're starting off with Greg Denham and uh, Yara Drug and Health Forum then it's going to be the Darwin Council because we kind of got a bit out of order. We went backwards because um, we wanted to hit them hard with what's coming up that's first. That's right. Um, yeah, so we'll be right back. You folks, stay tuned.
4: Tune in, dig deep, and clean up by purchasing some fantastic discounted gardening books from 3CR's online garden store. We have books on water-wise gardening, organic vegetables, roses, climbers and creepers and even clematis. It's easy go to our website 3cr.org.au and follow the links on the front page. Don't have internet access? Call the station during business hours between 9 and 5 and we'll post out a catalogue in the mail. All proceeds help keep Melbourne's favourite gardening show on air for another year. Tune in 7.30am every Sunday morning.
0: And you are listening to 3CR Community Radio. We're here in the studio with Greg, Greg Denham. Denham, yeah. Good th- morning.
3: Yeah, thanks for getting up early this morning, Greg. No, Denham. it's not early for me.
2: This oh, is, okay. This is sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's it's you now that you can see at 5 o'clock in the morning. It's How fantastic. refreshing
0: to have someone come in early in the show and not say, oh,
5: you know what? I just had a can of V this morning and I feel like trash. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've had my protein shake and uh, I've been on my bike. And I've ridden here, I think, in record time. But, um, no, it's, it's great to be up at this time of the morning. It's, um, be- it's a beautiful day. It's a lovely day. Yeah, yeah, it's day. yeah it yeah, sure
3: so. is. Yeah. So, Greg, I'm just going to to embarrass you and introduce you a little bit because you have been on before. But I, th- I think sometimes people forget, you know, mm. a, a bit of the background. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean they forget you and what you said. That was terrible. I mean, it meant that, you know, you've become uh, almost a friend of the show and... People forget, you know, that um, you are, as we said, the executive officer of the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. But you've also had a lot of international experience working with police officers through the UN. It's yes, correct. that's
5: right. Yes, UNODC and UNA. So I've done a lot of work with police around um, gaining access to or people who use um, drugs, inject drugs, um, sex workers, men who have sex with men, um, accessing programs which prevent the spread of um, HIV. And a lot of um, Transitional resource poor countries gaining access to needle and syringe programs, condoms, methadone is very, very difficult because the police take a very harsh line towards those, you know, types of behaviours. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, so, uh, working with police, um, in those countries, I've uh, worked in Nigeria, Tanzania, Kenya, South Africa, all throughout Southeast Asia, um, I guess demonstrating to them, um, the benefits not only of preventing HIV, obviously, uh, but also, uh, the benefits to them in terms of, reducing um, and also gaining access to um, programs which help keep communities safer, like like methadone, for example, mm. which is a very good crime prevention tool. So that's yes. the other sort of work I've been doing over the last um, 13, 13 years.
3: Yeah, and, and seeing it as crime prevention as well. You know, people don't necessarily see it like that.
5: No, no, that's right. It, it is um, a, an effective tool to reduce people's, um, I guess, activity in terms of their particularly injecting um, drug use, heroin use, and those that are... Um, maintaining their dependency um, through criminal activity and, and that's only a small number by the way, it's not the majority who, who don't yes. yeah, commit other crimes. Um, I but mean, that's an important myth to It is an spell. important message. There is a lot of myths and misconceptions about um, illicit drug use in general, about um, the level of activity of crime that, that's associated with it. The majority of associated crime with um, illegal drugs is by the people who supply it and the criminal activity they're involved with, uh, particularly yes. the mm. you know other types of criminal behaviour that they use drug money to siphon into other criminal behaviour. But um, <clears throat> the majority of people that use illicit drugs, don't necessarily have an issue with their drug use and aren't involved with that, any other types of um, criminal behaviour. And that's one of the reasons why we want to change the law to make, to make um, drug use a non-criminal offence, which yeah, I think so is to really to important. to decriminalise. That's right, exactly. Yeah. That's why we want to decriminalise mm. drug use. Yeah. yeah.
3: So, so I think on, on that point, uh, let's look at how this year has been. <laughs> Um, and from the, at the Yarra Drug and Health Forum, I think you see the issues on the ground in the Yarra area. Yeah, so yeah we do. you've got that information. Yeah. But you also advocate for you know, law reform and at a state level. So how's the year been? Um, uh, uh, well,
5: it's been very exciting, <laughs> of course. We had the medically supervised injecting room open up in July, and that's going really well. Uh, we found that uh, during the last state election that uh, the community response to the opposition, the Liberal uh, National Party's... Uh, policy to close it down we found the community response was really a, a strong backlash against that policy so which was very um encouraging so, very
3: satisfying mm. to see that yeah. it was yeah. it was
2: quite strange that um matthew guy decided to run that as one of his slogans during the election <laughs> you know like yeah. he doesn't want his kids going to us to a school close to a safe injecting room
5: yeah i thought that was quite ironic um in the first place that mm. they actually you know he would think that where he lives, you know, there would be an issue with um, injecting drug use in public, um, which I guess indicates the divide between the people that, that, I guess, live and work and are associated with areas where there is, you know, fairly high levels of public injecting and, and the people that are so, um, I guess, divorced from that environment, they have no idea mm-hmm. about what's going on. You know, Matthew Guy had no idea what's going on in North Richmond and I think that that really showed for yeah. his campaign. You know, the school... That's right next to the uh, medically supervised injecting room has all along said that they want that room. Mm. You know, that they were very supportive no one, of that. No area. one asked the school. No. They
2: just spent $250,000 on ads.
5: Yeah, that's right, exactly. Yeah. So it was very much a, a misinformation um, uh, campaign by the Liberals and Nationals about that, that program. So, uh, and it was good to see that the, the uh, community saw right through that. So, that, and they and they voted against that, that sort of proposal.
0: And a strong advocate of the safe injecting room is Fiona Patton, who's been brought back into the Senate, or at least we, we've got fairly strong promise that she will be. No, no, it's official. It's official. It's official. It's official. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay, it's cool. official. There
5: was an cool. announcement yesterday. That's, and that's uh, great. Yes, it was. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, an interesting time because um you know she 's been ahead, then she fell behind. It was kind of like um, one of those races where you were worrying you know who who's kind of what, what, whose nose so to speak was on on the finishing line yeah. you and know, whether it would be a photo finish which, which it was but yeah no it was um, a great a great victory by her a well deserved victory and uh, one which I hope now um, clearly indicates that you know we need to further progress drug policy reform um, in this state. Um, there's an appetite for it. Uh, there's community um, support for it, um, and I think Fiona is the person who can um, yeah, can, can can generate that type of... Um, well, policy. well,
3: she's certain, certainly shown that leadership and not only on drug reform mm. I and, mean, you know, promoting and getting people thinking more deeply but on other issues as well, so...
5: Oh, absolutely. She's, yeah. she's involved with um, a number mm. of um, policy um, initiatives around the exclusion zone for the uh, Fertility Clinic in East Melbourne. Uh, she initiated the uh, Dying with Dignity legislation. So, um, you know, um, she's obviously, you know, been a strong supporter of the injecting room. She... she um, Promoted or, or um, put that um, p- a policy legislation through through yes. Parliament. So she's 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 a, she's a doer. You know she actually does stuff. So yes. she's fantastic. Mm.
3: So so Greg, I mean I'm curious. I mean I think it's been quite a good year. I mean the, the injecting room was certainly super medically supervised mm. injecting room certainly a, a win or and a, a move in the right direction. What would you like to see now? I mean well, what's What's 2019 looking like in your in your uh, view? It's
5: going to be, um, I think, a year of. Uh Progress and change. Uh, I think, as I said before, there's an appetite for change. We had um, a pill testing um, pilot in Canberra at the beginning oh, of the yeah. year. Yeah,
3: just explain, just explain a bit about the pill testing.
5: Well, uh, the pill testing uh, that went ahead in Canberra was a pilot at the Groove in the Moo uh, festival, which um, I always love the names more yeah. than anything else. <laughs> I'm <laughs> just sorry <laughs> I didn't get there. It sounds so <laughs> good. <laughs> um, and basically what it is, is, is a person goes into um, a festival, a music festival, or, you know, such an event, and uh, they, um, if they've got uh, some ecstasy tablets, um, some other powdered drug or some type of uh, substance which um, they can test, they uh, give it to um, scientists who are set up with these um, gas chromatographs which analyse these drugs, and they, they're provided with information about what's in that drug, and... Uh, there are peer educators there who can provide advice about the, uh, the the potential risks and outcomes from that particular substance. So, and that and that information is disseminated to um, other people at the event, and <clears throat> it's very quick process. You know, and uh, mm. you know you, you don't you, you might you might lose a little bit of the the tablet that you have, but you don't lose all of it. So word gets around that you know these are you know have got you stuff Don't touch them, those purple ones. That's right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A- and you mentioned that you tried it in Canberra. How long until, I guess, the results of that pilot can come to you guys so that you might sort of go, well, this is in our planning for 2019 for other festivals. I mean, we still see kids dying because...
5: It's there. uh, Yeah. We've done it. We've done the evaluation. And that is another hat I wear through Harm Reduction Australia. Mm. I'm on the board of Harm Reduction Australia, and a a consortium of agencies, um, including Harm Reduction Australia, was involved with that pilot at the beginning of the year. So um, we have this information. We also have information from a UK research, uh, from a UK organisation called The Loop, which yep. um, have been quite active in, in Australia over the last few months, advocating for um, you know, pill testing. So it's all there. All the research is there. And it's a good point you bring up because I was only talking about this uh, yesterday about, um, you know, the research around harm reduction And, uh, harm reduction is one of those, um, policies which, um, a lot of people feel very uncomfortable with and they continually ask to, um, justify what you do. Mm You know, what's the research? And, and, you know, methadone, needle and syringe programs, injecting rooms have been researched more than any other type of health or medical response. And we continually have to say, we have the research, we have the evidence. All right. And that's not, that is not what is stopping this. It's, um, people's fear. And, and it's got nothing to do with the, the financial side of it no. either,
2: does it? Because it's, it's, I would say it's probably more emotional. If you're a mother who's lost a, a child or mothers who are, and fathers mm-hmm. who have lost kids, this is something that you could help other people moving forward a lot quicker than sort of saying, well, you know, it's going to cost us $25 million to implement yeah. it. It's actually not going to cost that much. No, it's not. It's yeah. not,
5: um, and it's very, very cost effective. It's yeah. like the old saying about the injecting room, how much value do you, do you put on a life? You know, um, we spend millions, if not billions on research around mental health issues every year for, across a range of issues, um, including smoking, you yeah. know, and alcohol dependency and those types of substance use issues. So, um, what's to stop us from actually putting some money into programs that save lives through people who are using Substances um, which we know are harmful, not because of necessarily the substance itself, but the policies yeah. cause the harm, not necessarily the drugs.
3: Yes, and the, that the whole war on drugs mentality has lingered, you know, and it was never a good idea from the beginning.
5: No, and the drug war, I guess, the propaganda, the The myths about um, harm reduction are part of that because you hear often that, oh, we can't have pill testing because, you know, it sends the wrong message or it undermines the anti-drug message or, you know, it puts up the white flag. We're giving up or it sends the green light to drug traffickers. All of this mythology, this propaganda stuff has been, you know, um, part of, I guess... The um the the anti drug movement drug war movement for a long time and I think a lot of people now are starting to realise well sorry that's not true it's that that's mm. actually false.
3: Well I mean Portugal has been such an example in that where they what was it 2001 they decriminalised was it that? 2001 time? that's right so it's
5: yeah. nearly 20 years ago they've had decriminalisation of drug use and it's mm. been an overwhelming success. Yeah
2: and something's hold, holding us back here in Victoria and I guess in Australia in relation to
5: modernising harm
2: minimisation?
5: Well, it's been our policy since the early 90s and we've always had harm minimisation being supply reduction, demand reduction and harm reduction. Whereas towards the end of the 90s, when we had a very conservative Prime Minister there was a strong backlash against harm reduction. And, uh, you know, that that kind of narrative started to come into the conversations about harm reduction, you know, it it undermines the anti-drug message. In fact, the Prime Minister at the time, John Howell, got up in Parliament and said that he didn't succumb to the harm minimisation movement Mm. about, you know, dealing with the drug issue. So that tough on drugs, uh, law enforcement, you know, tougher penalties, that narrative became the mainstream over the last 10, 15 years. And over the last probably four or five years, we've tried to shift that back towards a more balanced approach towards drug policy and, and looking at ways in which we can reduce harm even when drug taking is still happening, which we know will happen and will continue to happen.
3: Yeah, it's never not happened. I mean, it's, you know, when we go and have a beer, we're using a of drug, course we are. example. You know, yeah. the difference
5: is, of course, that it's legal, it's regulated, it's analysed, we know what we're taking. Um, you know, we, we have... Redu- harm reduction strategies. We have we have mechanisms, of course, to prevent harm to ourselves and others, like like drink driving and that type of thing. But that type of regulated, controlled um, availability of drugs is something that we should be considering and working our way towards across the whole drug spectrum, including heroin. Now we we know in programs such as um, um, heroinist treatment in Canada, in in Switzerland and in Germany and other places of the world works.
3: Yes, and that that's the program where people have tried other methods that hasn't worked but you have and then they prescribed heroin that's right that's right yeah.
5: it's pure and um, it's used in a, in a medical environment the person um, has regular health checkups, and the research again shows that a person that goes on to heroin-assisted treatment um, reduces all of the the, the more um, I guess all the the, the more sort of uh, non-drug related harms that that person is experiencing in their lives like Housing, employment, stable relationships, mm. criminal activity—that type of thing—which which, um, is often the, the the issues which a person has the most difficulty with. They don't have any difficulty with getting the drug, but it's the other issues in their life which causes them of, of, often more significant harm.
2: Yeah, mm. yes. and I guess um, you know just to sort of move forward, you, you talk about 2019. Normally, you have your public meetings the first Monday of every month, um, right. I think between 12.30 and 2, 2019, when do you start and um, are you going to have more meetings? Yes, you know, yes, obviously, yes.
5: Yeah. Well, we've been going since 1996, so yep. we are, I don't see any reason why we can't go next year. Uh, oh, I just so. mean
2: adding, I and mean, I think, yeah, you, I know. you know, there might be a lot of people who might sort of start to then go, oh, can we have it every fortnight? Because <laughs> it, it, there, there's that, you know, I think there's a groundswell of support from different people, groups, who would be sort of be saying, you know, let's get on to this. There, there is that festival season coming up, for example, with the pill testing, but then there's other issues in relation to injecting rooms.
3: Yes, and, and, and so I guess, you know, what's on your agenda, or is your first meeting already planned?
5: Uh, well, it, it's certainly, um, it, it's certainly uh, booked in. We yeah. don't have a speaker. Um, we meet on the February the 4th, which is okay. the first Monday of February, which is the first Monday of every month we meet, as you say, at 12.30 at the Richmond Town Hall. And we look for um, speakers. Um, we try to find something topical, something of interest. Um, there are a lot of agencies doing different types of training and events and, and that type of stuff. So we try to look for the gaps or the spaces which other agencies or other groups aren't sort of tapping into. And a lot of what we do is based around more progressive drug policies, harm reduction um Challenging policies, um, advocating for change, um, you know, doing all those things which um, often other agencies find um, either too difficult or too challenging or too sensitive. So we, well, we try if you're, to.
3: If you're government funded, it's, it's a little more difficult to um, challenge the, the government orthodoxy, I guess.
5: Yeah, and look, at, that's, a, that's a line that the Yarrow Dragon Health Forum does walk in terms of ensuring that, uh, we are mindful that, uh, you know, we have to acknowledge that, you know, that there's, um, that there's a significant amount of investment in the current approach and it's going to be very challenging for difficult and difficult for governments to say, look, you know, we realize what we're not, what we're doing hasn't necessarily worked. So we're going to completely change everything overnight. That won't happen. So what we try to do is we try to walk with policymakers and say, look, this is, this is the approach we recommend. Um, and it's worked elsewhere. Um, it's cost effective, it'll save lives, um, and, this is, and this is the research and this is what we believe should be the next move. So that's the sort of process that we, we, we adopt as far as the forum is concerned. And what we try to do is we try to relate, I guess, the bigger picture stuff to what happens in Yarra, bring it back to Yarra Dragon Health mm. Forum, because uh, we, we, for example, we have people from all over Melbourne coming to North Richmond to purchase and use heroin. And a lot of those people now obviously use in the dicking room. but how, what's a way we can actually maybe look at wa- look at ways to stop that pro- sort of process of people coming down all the way into North Richmond and then using in the injecting room? Why don't we look at you know where where are people you know coming from? What can we do there in terms of their issues? What what are the sorts of things that maybe help prevent? You know, um, people getting involved in the drug issue, heroin use in the first place.
3: Yes, and that's that's the trickier one, isn't it? I I mean, it's uh, how people, people's lives, you know, whether they can get housing, whether they can get work, you know, how the relationships are going. I mean, so much feeds in, and poverty. Yeah. So much feeds in because, you know, one of the things that drugs do is they relieve pain Often, and heroin in particular, that's right. both physical and mental. And so it isn't just, you know, an individual by themselves. It's how, how they're um, growing up, how their life is. So to make, li- and this is a much broader policy now that we're talking about, mm. about less inequality and a more just society. That is also a, a huge <laughs> benefit for preventing. Yeah, that's right. The, and and yeah.
5: uh, it's, it's encouraging that the state government is going to have A Royal Commission into uh, Mental Health, which is, um, which is going to, I hope, really, um, sort of expand and, um, open up the discussion around that linkage between people who have chronic levels of dependency who have those early childhood experiences, and when I was in Canada recently they uh, they talked about um, at the conference that I was at adverse childhood experiences being a driver for uh, long term chronic dependency, particularly on heroin, which is a painkiller, but also it 's also an emotional painkiller so it 's about emotional regulation so how can we prevent that? How can we uh, prevent <coughs> young people um, being being subjected or experiencing those types of um, you know those those types of um things that happen in their life when they're young, uh, which can be the driver of long-term dependency around drugs, that sort of self-medication stuff, and that anxiety and and all of those associated mental health issues. So I'm hoping that the Royal Commission will will delve into that as well.
3: Yes, well it looks like an interesting year coming up. <laughs> yeah. No,
2: I was just going to say yes, thank you and thank you for joining us once again. Thanks in, for the in, in the studio. Um, we've just been still are talking to Greg Denham the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. Sounds like you're going on leave because you're not back until the February 4th, but I know our listeners would know that you're actually not probably taking a break. You're going to be doing a lot more work. We really appreciate you joining. Thanks. Yeah. To um, just
5: on that point, though, we do have a Facebook page and uh, we have a website, and um, if anybody wants to catch up on you know, what we're doing, just uh, by all means... Contact me through the Facebook page or um, through the uh, website, um, and yes, uh, my, my phone's—I'm always available on my phone, <laughs> even though it's holidays. So well,
3: thanks so much for coming this morning, thanks. Greg.
0: Now, just to re- um, underscore that, Yarra Drug and Health Forum is going to have their next public forum on February the fourth, 12 p.m. 12:30, 12:30, 12:30. Beg your pardon, at the Richmond Town Hall. That's right. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio.
4: Tell the and I am fighting for my
1: life. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas, and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government in our name treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees 10am
2: every Sunday at 3CR 855 on the AM dial
4: to say I'm not a worthless <laughs> human being Cause no one needs a worthless human being My family need a worthwhile human being Cherish these moments while we are still young
2: Ah, aptly named The Dregs, the boys from Bribie Island in Queensland. All it says is all you need is a combi, a couple of guitars and a sound box and you can drive up and down the East Coast creating fantastic music. If you want to support local Australian music, go and check them out. Aptly named The Dregs. It's time now to get to our next guest, um... Durban Council yesterday mentioned that they have supported um, and will be supported in moving away from... Um, sorry, will be supporting sporting clubs and community groups for moving away from relying on electronic gaming machines as a source of revenue and recreation under their new electronic gaming machine policy and action plan, um, which was endorsed by the council on December the 3rd. Uh, essentially... Uh, what is it? When you talk about, I guess, what has been happening in the the space of gambling, a lot of, um, how can I put it, in size and importance of gambling industry in Australia has grown significantly over the last three decades. And during this time, there's been a fourfold increase in real gambling turnover, um, and I guess gambling is now a large taxation revenue earner for many governments at both federal and state levels, um, and gambling has long been the subject, essentially, of intense debate. But at the same time, they talk about um, how there is some community benefit, the gaming um, and state revenue, and I guess some of the TAB and those organisations say there's some community benefits, but we know that gambling is not, you know, that beneficial. There is some very, very... um uh, it causes distress for a lot of people, um, gambling itself. So sporting clubs and local governments from all well over the state who receive funding for some of the important upgrades to facilities would argue that this boosts local support and supports small business mm. and creating and jobs. somewhat
0: in, in um, opposition to this. To, that to the new policy, yeah. New but to find out a little bit more,
2: we are joined by Susan um, Rennie, who is the mayor of Durban Council. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. A bit long-winded there. I was, trying, I was trying to sort of make a point as to you know, the, 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 the opposition to what your government is doing. There's, there's groups out there who believe that this creates jobs and supports a community, but I think it's a great initiative by Darabin to introduce this electronic gaming machines policy. Can you tell us a little bit about the policy itself and, and how long um, you've been working on it?
6: Um, sure. So we first um, looked at developing a policy such as this over a year ago and during the last year have undertaken significant consultation with clubs in Darabin to understand how reliant they are on poker machine revenue and the impact of um, a policy change in direction. And what we found is that many of our clubs actually support moving away from this type of sponsorship and this sort of relationship with poker machine venues which might expose people to harm. And at its very core, this is a policy about trying to limit the harm that eighty million dollars worth of losses on poking machines caused to our community in Darwin. and And those harms are significant, they include family violence and poverty and relationship breakdowns. And um, we think that's actually really worth tackling and being very firm in our approach.
2: And I mentioned that um, you know so, so some of the sporting clubs who do receive that would argue that it, it boosts local um, local sport and I guess supports small business. How do you think the policy, I guess, will create a pathway for clubs and community groups to reduce their involvement with these with pokies, so to speak?
6: Um, what we know from speaking to our clubs is that for most clubs in and the overwhelming majority actually operate without support from poker machines venues and, and from those losses that are so harmful to our communities. So we know it is possible to operate a club without relying on that revenue source. Hmm. There were a handful of clubs that um, received small amounts of sponsorship from the, uh, from the poker machine industry and we're suggesting that taking that kind of money is a bit like taking money from the tobacco industry and we don't do that anymore in Australia. We, we made that change 30 years ago and I think now we're looking to apply similar public health principles to, to this field and with those clubs we're looking at assisting them with finding other sources of revenue and some of the clubs have actually made that transition by themselves quite smoothly. So where they might have in the past received some money from a Pokies venue to enable them to have branded um, tops for the kids, now they might go and find a real estate agent, for example, who could sponsor their their kids' jerseys. And I think that's much healthier because I think it's really very poor for children to be running around with a Pokies venue emblazoned on their soccer top.
2: Um, and is that, is that enough though? I guess, uh, you know, when we, when we look at and I'm maybe just playing the devil's advocate the, the rise in women being involved in sport and then if you look at the Darabin community you know, some of those um, facilities are quite old um, and the clubs are quite old Where, how are they going to get the money to then build you know, changing room facilities for for girls, so to speak, is how you know. That's what I mean, I guess, by trying to get that revenue to do that. Is the council going to support them, or will the clubs have to try and find revenue on their own?
6: So, well, typically, those kind of upgrades have always been the domain of council, and they've always been things council has paid for. Right. In some cases, clubs have put in a contribution. Um, we've said that we won't have poker machine generated contributions coming into our facilities. That it's up to council to maintain them and council has invested an enormous amount in improving change facilities particularly for um women to increase participation by women in sport which is very very important to us um but it, but it's interesting to note that one of our premier women's clubs in darabin the darabin falcons Falcon. made a very conscious decision but that wasn't a revenue stream they were willing to participate in um because it's not healthy and it sends the wrong message
3: so, I mean, this, Judith here, um, um, Mayor, Mayor Rennie, yeah. So I'm interested, I think we're seeing more young people actually become involved in gambling as well. I think that's one of the trends that's been happening.
6: Yes, it's true that um, young people are particularly at risk and, and that's partly because of the excessive advertising of gambling that we've seen on television and much of that advertising links gambling and sport. And we're trying to really separate the two. I don't think gambling, and our council doesn't think gambling, has any place in sport. They should be separate, and it sends a much stronger message to our clubs and to kids who are playing sport that sport is about sport, it's not about the odds, and it's not about placing the bet.
2: And in reality, I mean, for Gariband Council, I think you mentioned that not a lot of clubs in the area did um have you know pokey support and you worked with two major advocacy forums. I think one of them was their local government working group on gambling and the Victorian Local Governance Association. What what were some of their recommendations from that they gave you from your participation with them and some of the key takeouts as well.
6: Both the Victorian Local Governance Association and also the Public Health Association of Australia have policies that recommend against taking donations from the gambling industry. And they do that because there are actually harms associated mm-hmm. with taking those donations. And so we've really looked at that principle and applied that to um, our community it, as a way of saying, we don't want to be associated with harmful products. $80 million worth of harm in our community is enormous. We think about the the family breakdown, the poverty and that's something that we really
2: want to tackle and it has a flow on effect when it comes to things like mental health you know crime um, and things like that as well um, and the, the policy obviously was endorsed on december the 3rd just to you know sort of um, wrap it up there the action plan is for four years 2018 to 2022 that's right. where can people go and have a quick look at it because i think i was calling it egms which is electronic gaming machine but Essentially, most of us know them as pokies, don't we?
6: Yes. So people can find the policy on our website, and part of the policy is a, a, a significant transition plan for um, clubs, particularly the one club in Darabin that does actually operate poking machines to ensure that they can remain a, a viable club um, whilst finding alternative sources of revenue. And, and we think that will contribute to a much healthier community and um, we really, as I said, want to tackle that harm that is occurring to our community at the moment. Uh,
2: you might not have the answer, but we're quite lucky, I guess, in the area of Darabin that we don't have that many. How Have you had conversations with other councils who might be in rural areas where you know the, the, there's probably relatively high spend on EGM gambling high unemployment and lower average weekly earnings where some of those clubs in those areas might need to to get that have you had chat, uh, conversations with them and, and are they finding hard to introduce such a policy and will you be able to you know shed some light on that in the future for them?
6: Look, I hope that other local councils will look at our policy and think about adopting something similar, but ultimately it's up to each community mm. to work out what works for them. I think it is worth noting that poker machines are a very low-employment return industry. That means that for every dollar spent in the poker machine, you get very little employment compared to if that dollar was spent in retail or small business. So when you actually do the numbers, it looks though like poker machines might be generating employment, but they're probably costing more employment in terms of the diversion of money from other sectors which mm. would employ more people and I think that's really important to consider in all communities when we talk about this issue um, and, and particularly rural communities where there might not be quite as many options for people but fuel poker machines would probably mean more small businesses, um, a healthier community and I think those are really things worth fighting for.
2: Yeah, and they argue the opposite, don't they, Susan? And it makes perfect sense the way you put it because, you know, those people who are working, if they're putting $100 back in the machine, there's no way it's going to equate to, you know, creating a job that's paying somebody $100 an hour. Or support their their family. I
3: mean, this is a great move by Durban Council, and congratulations.
2: Thank thank you very much for joining us on uh, 3CR, and, um, yeah, we'll put those details out on our um, website. Fantastic. Thanks
6: so much. Have a great morning.
2: And that was um, the Mayor of Draven Council, Councillor Susan Rennie, talking to us about their new policy. And as um, you just mentioned, Judith, you know, it, it, it's a fantastic move. Every year in Durban people lose over $80 million to gambling. So it's a great initiative.
0: You're listening
1: to, to 3CR. Subscribe to your award winning independent community radio,
5: bringing you coverage of community issues and events.
6: Welcome to the Little Red Slinghi tree Treehouse. As you said, I'm down at the East west Tunnel Ticket, as it usually does, starts at 5.30am.
5: Uh, the Lincoln Melbourne Authority have come here in the middle of the night and set up another drill rig here on Gold Street. Police were pretty keen to defend that with all their resources this morning.
7: And I think for Australians... In order to know ourselves, really fully know ourselves, in order to mature, we need to understand Aboriginal culture. We need to embrace it and realise that in coming here, you're now part of the longest continuing culture in the world.
5: We need your support. Subscribe today. Call nine four one nine eight three double seven now.
0: Good song for your morning there. That was Axis Mundi by uh, Alex Andwander. Uh
3: You are listening to 3CR Community Radio. What do we have coming up? And on the line, we have Shirley Winton, who's the nas- on the National Coordinating Committee of IPAN, the in- Independent and Peaceful Australia Network. And she's going to tell us about the work of IPAN and uh, what they've been doing over the last year and what's coming up. Are you there, Shirley?
7: Yes, I am. Good morning, right. everyone.
3: Yeah, good. Thanks for joining us this morning, Shirley.
7: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
3: Yeah, so I know, I mean, I think IPAN's been going about six years now. Would that be right?
7: Yeah, that's right. So it was actually formed in um, 2012, and it was um, in response to the announcement in Australian Parliament by... Uh, the former president of the America, Barack Obama, with the, um, you know, with the support uh, with the, of the government at the time, the Australian government, the Labor government at the time, um, of the US pivot into Asia-Pacific, which would move 60% of the US military naval forces from around the world to Asia-Pacific, was aim- obviously aimed at the rising power of China, and critically um, it would see a much, um, more integrated role uh, by the by the Australian military and Australian um, Australian government um, in the U.S. global military agendas and policies. So, um, for the first time, and this was announced, uh, this was the first um, you know international announcement that. For the first time, the U.S. Marines will be stationed permanent, permanently in Australia.
3: But I mean, that, this is, um, is one. this is an excuse me for interrupting there, but I mean, this is an interesting phenomenon having the mm. the Marines on Australian soil. Yeah,
7: yeah. Well, that's right. That, that's for the first time that uh, foreign foreign troops, um, overseas troops. Um, Particularly, um, uh, American troops, uh, and not even British troops, were permanently stationed on on, the, on Australian soil. And this announcement was made jointly with uh, Barack Obama and Ju, um, Julia Gillett, uh, the the, the um, Prime the Minister Labor. at the time.
5: Yeah. You would also
7: see, um, and initially it was two thousand five hundred US Marines, um, but that was the the that would be the start of the. Um, of the, I guess in some ways that would sort of open the door to more um, Marines in in the event of uh, war in the Asia Pacific. Um, Pine Gap, the the um, the US um, highly secretive US military and in- intelligence um, facility in um, Ellis Briggs, would be uh, would be expanded, uh, which it is now. And I think most people now know that Pine Gap is probably the second most important. U.S. military intelligence
3: base. Um, yeah, I mean, in it's, the it's world. not so secretive anymore, is it? I no, think we have no. become more aware. Whereas, right. um, you know, when it I think it was um, just trying to think who published the report, a suitable piece of real estate um, in oh, yes, 1980, yeah yeah, yeah. nineteen eighty, which was I think the first time we we really um, knew what was going on there.
7: That's right. Yes, yeah, mm. that was. Um, but it's secretive in the sense that no one... Well, we, there's a general knowledge kind of, of We know that it's, a, it's an intelligence ga- gathering. It's, um, it's used for drones, um, but um, it's far wider. Its um, applications in part and Gap are much wider. I mean, it, it actually is involved in wars in Asia-Pacific and also in some of the activities taking place in... in sorry, not in Asia-Pacific, in, in the Middle East, but also some activities taking with... Um, uh, China's situation in China, South China Sea. So apart from that, from that the pivot uh, and the impact or the implication for Australia is that the the old uh, the older US bases and installations were being reopened and upgraded, um, like Northwest Cape, and there would be a much deeper integration and subservience of the Australian military into US global. Um, Military objectives, and also into its military-industrial complex, which we're now seeing with the um, with the presence, uh, much higher presence of the um, of the multinational U.S. multinational weapons manufacturers. Yes. Australia like Lockheed Martin. Yes, and indeed. The Raytheon. Um,
3: yeah, and, and truly, I'm just wanting to, just to, to come back. So you, you said these were some of the reasons that, yeah, um th- yeah. that IPAN was established. Who were some of the people involved? I don't mean not so much names, but what were their backgrounds of the people that okay. came, became involved in IPAN back okay, then? There were,
7: there were about, probably I'd say about six, um uh, six organizations and there were, um, mainly peace and community organisations, so some of the organisations were Medical Association for Prevention for War um, in in Victoria uh, Just Peace in Queensland which is also a, quite a, an old, you know, um, an organ- and a very active organisation in Queensland that has been um, actively involved around peace for a long time. Um, we had um, Spirit of Eureka which is also a national, a national organisation which is advocating for Australia's independence. Um, There was, um, we had a, um, 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 a, we had somebody from the Uniting Church um, who was particularly interested. We had the CICD. Um, We had um, um, Filipino Caucus for Peace. Um,
3: So it's actually, you know, people from quite a variety of backgrounds together with um, peace activists that go back quite a long way.
7: Yeah, they've been. A lot of them have been um, active. You know, going back to even the, you know, the the big the NCU's basis campaigns in the in the seventies. Yes, um,
3: yes. Where, so where it there sounds.
7: were those big those big um, those big uh, marches and um, camp, um, protests outside Pine Gap, but also. There was a, a, used to be called the long march right up to northwest cape in the in i think it was nineteen
3: seventy six yes yeah, so so
7: it does go it it has a lot of depth um and um and history to it but we now we've we there are actually um six it's a national network um and there are now um, 64, 65, um affiliate organizations um which is very which are very diverse, so they include unions um, like the MUA, the CFMEU, the, um, the NTU, the ETU, who are also affiliated to IPED And we, one of the things that we're doing with um, the, the unions is we've set up a peace and justice uh, union business working group.
3: Oh, that, that, um, sounds, that sounds uh, exciting. Have you got yeah. some, some things that are coming up in the new year?
7: Okay. Yeah. So in the new year, um, we've um, we've planning the activities. As one of our major campaigns in the new year would be a people's inquiry into military spending, and that's going to be a very broad people's inquiry. So it's not a parliamentary inquiry. So we have ownership, or the ordin- ordinary people have the ownership of the inquiry, and there are two areas that that we're looking at um, to conduct inquiry around, and that is. Contrasting military spending on U.S. wars and multinational weapons manufacturers, um, and contrasting that with the inadequate spending and cuts to social and community needs like health, education, housing, environment. Well,
3: well, that's um, that's going to be amazing. Are you going to be having those having events around Australia, or will well, it be yeah, focused? Well, yeah, they're going
7: to be. What we're discussing is we're having. There'll be a panel set up in each in each state. Um, we're inviting um, community groups and unions to put in submissions, whether they're written submissions or verbal submissions. We're, you know, we're encouraging a lot of creativity. We're encouraging uh, accessibility to for ordinary people. The, the
4: and
3: and uh, uh, Shirley, sorry to interrupt again because we're, we're going to run out of time, but sure, I'm sure. just wondering how people can find out if they want to get involved.
7: Okay, so with IPAN in Victoria, we've got IPAN Victoria um group and you can um people can contact us on zero four one seven four five six double zero one that's zero four one seven oh four one oh five six double zero one
3: and when will Um, events start like when when would you like to start hearing from people
7: Sorry, the inquiry. Um, The inquiry will probably start, we think it will probably start in about March. But people can contact um, the Victorian branch of IPAN on that number or our email address, which is IPANVictoria number one, like just one.
3: Well, Um, that's that's terrific, Shirley. And uh, thank you and IPAN for (laughs) really important work. Thank you, Judith. uh, On peace. And all the best to you too. Thank Thank you. you. Uh, welcome to 3CR again. If you've just tuned in, or if you've been listening all along, it's been great to have your company this morning. And we want to also just give a little shout out to to our our, our, sis, our sisters and brothers in Tuesday Breakfast, and particularly to Ayan Shirwa, who at uh, the, the 3CR Community Awards on Friday night ran away with the troublemaker. of The yeah troublemaker. That's award. right. Yeah, yeah Ayan Shirwa
0: won that for um, the great work on. Uh, I believe it's Accent of Women. That's um, right. With Jazana. Yeah, that's right. And also on Tuesday Breakfast, but also Tuesday Breakfast themselves won a award for best new show. Tuesday Breakfast, as we know, there have been Tuesdays since the beginning of time, but uh, it's a new team that's only started this year, and um, they've, yeah, they've won the award in recognition work. of their great, you know, just yeah. such a great vibe every Tuesday morning, great interviews,
3: yeah, really yeah, insightful yeah, analysis. So good. So it was so exciting to yeah. see. Yeah. CIN. Much deserved. Yep.
0: If you're one of the five people in Melbourne who Listen to Wednesday but don't listen to Tuesday... (laughs) <laughs> I think it's probably less than five, to be honest. Um, but if you're one of those people, you're, being overly,
3: you're being overly <laughs> modest, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but do check out Tuesday, but do check out all the breakfasts. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Solidarity
0: yeah. Breakfast with Annie on um, on Saturdays is great as well, if you're early yeah. on, up early on the Saturday. Yes.
3: Well, uh, one person who's up early this morning is Peter Owen, because we're call- speaking to him in Adelaide. So I think it's about 7.30 his time, and uh, we're in a more comfortable 8 o'clock. A slot <laughs> so Peter is the uh, South Australian Director of the Wilderness Society, and um he's going to tell us about their campaign to prevent drilling in the great australian bite so Peter, welcome to the three c r wednesday breakfast thank you and and that wasn't true. We have ten people listening at least. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so, uh, Peter, first of all, I think for people in Victoria who may not have got out to the Bight, the Great Australian Bight, because it is a a bit remote if you're going all the way out to the Nullarbor. can you tell us a bit about, you know, what it is? Like, what's the extent of it?
1: Well, the Great Australian Bight is is a huge expanse of water across southern Australia. Um, But it's also home to some of the most significant uh, whale nurseries in the world. It's a magnificent marine wilderness area uh, that's currently under threat with plans to expand the oil industry into the region and carry out uh, very risky uh, deep sea oil drilling. So
0: So who's threatened the Great Australian Bight with their oil drilling?
1: Well, there's been numerous companies over the last few years, um, which has obviously triggered a huge uh, environmental campaign. Uh, across southern Australia. Uh, Initially, it was BP, uh, then Chevron. Both of those companies have have since withdrawn uh, their push to drill. Uh, But now we're dealing with uh, a company that's two-thirds owned by the Norwegian government called Equinor, who uh, are now pushing uh, to get uh, approval from the Australian regulator, Noxema, to drill the Great Australian Bite Whale Nursery uh, late next year.
3: And what are the, well, first of all, I mean, I understand that, uh, you know, waters that, you know, will, or, and any problems that come out of this will also affect both Western Australia, the south of Western Australia, the southeast probably, and also Victoria. So, I mean, it, while it's very localized in one way, it isn't in another. What are the risks of drilling in the bite?
1: Well, the, the, the bite is a very, very rough, very remote and very deep Uh, part of the world. If we remember back to about 2010, there was a massive uh, oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, You know, that was in the middle of, you know, what's a relatively sheltered bay and an easy drilling proposition, uh, also in the middle of one of the most industrialised areas on the planet with all of the infrastructure you could possibly imagine to shut an oil blowout down, and it still took three months to do that. Um, So oil spill modelling for the bite shows that, uh, you know, the the consequences of a blowout are catastrophic, um, and probably would not be able to actually be dealt with just due to the fact that there is no infrastructure there and it's incredibly deep and remote. So uh, obviously there's serious concern and serious opposition to these proposals because, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a high-risk proposition.
3: And, and who's done the modelling? Uh, if, if there were, um, you know, a blowout, who's done the modelling?
1: Well, the, the Wilderness Society commissioned independent oil spill modelling a couple of years ago uh, when we couldn't actually get it to be made public from BP when they were looking to and pushing uh, for approvals, um, and that showed the extent of what was possible. What's interesting then, just before BP withdrew uh, their plans to drill, they released their own internal modelling, which made the Wilderness Society's modelling look conservative. Um, so we've known for some years now the magnitude of the risk. So you know we would suggest that it's it's highly responsible for. On um, people within you know state and federal Australian governments to be continuing to, to, to push and advocate for this process and it, I think it's highly irresponsible for oil, in, oil industry uh, proponents uh, you know to be pushing as well given the information that we now we now and what we now know.
3: So, so who is supporting this I mean there must be some benefits surely if people are supporting it
1: well, it's predominantly advocates for the oil industry and, obviously, oil industry advocates within uh, the Coalition and the Labor Party. Uh, there are very few others that are supporting this at all. I mean, there's, there's now 13 or 14 local local councils that have passed resolutions, uh, you know, raising serious concern with the risk. And, in, in fact, just last night, the surf uh, coast shire in Victoria, uh, your home home state, uh, passed a passed motion. So it's literally less than 12 hours old. And they joined a growing list of, of councils representing well over half a million people now, saying that this is just not on. You know, the, the risks here are serious. So, you know, we, we need state and federal governments to hear this message and just to step up and act responsibly and, uh, you know, get on with protecting the Great Australian bite and the people uh, that they're elected to represent the interests of.
2: And Peter, you talk about the Great Australian Bight. Obviously, it's somewhere between I think Port Lincoln and the Air Peninsula. Does does it have the same protection status as something like the Great Barrier Reef? And if not, why aren't we trying to get it similar?
1: Well, yeah, I mean it, it should have. I mean the Bight the bite is a vast area, as I said. It's covered in, in South Australian, but also federal marine parks. It's as I said, it's also home to one of some of the most significant whale nurseries in the world. Um, it 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 needs that status. So there's there's nominations at the moment for national heritage listing. There's also you know a lot of talk about world heritage listing. The Bight is one of one of the world's magnificent natural assets. You know it's on a par with the Barrier Reef. It's on a par with Antarctica, um, et cetera, in terms of its wilderness value. So it's absolutely an area that needs uh, much higher levels of protection and it's a completely inappropriate place to be pushing to expand the fossil fuel industry. But, I mean, I'd add to that there too. Pushing to expand the fossil fuel industry at this point in history is simply not an option if we're to have any chance of, you know, providing our children with a livable climate. We we know this. So not only is this a high-risk proposition into a magnificent wilderness area... uh, it's also a totally irresponsible scenario when you consider the climate predicament that we are now in. Pushing to expand the fossil fuel industry simply can't happen.
0: Uh, so to sort of the further right reaches of our political spectrum, um, you know, climate emergency be damned, it's all about jobs and growth, and that's the sort of thing that they'll be taking to um, the, the next election. I'm speaking about the Liberal Party and the National Party um, in, in federal government, but also in state governments. Um, from that angle on jobs and growth, um, is there a benefit to drilling in the bite or is there something to be lost in that aspect?
1: Well, there's, there's a lot to be lost. I mean, BP's own application when they were pushing for you know approval to drill essentially said that the job prospects at that point in the process would be negligible. Um, yet we're putting at risk thousands and thousands of very real jobs in the tourism industry, uh, the fishing industry, um, and, of course, the, you know, the, the coastal uh, communities right, right, potentially right across southern Australia. Um, it, it makes no sense at all what's being proposed here.
3: I just, uh, Peter, I just want to uh, come back now to, um, you know, what it's like to be out on the bite in particular, like to say the head of the bite uh, for people who may not have been there. And I know you have. So can you just tell us what it feels like there?
1: Well, the actual head of the bite is is on the edge of the Nullarbor Plain. Uh, that's a, a vast flat uh, limestone cast plain that then meets the ocean with these huge cliffs called the Bunda Cliffs. Um, and you can stand on the edge of the Bunda Cliffs, looking down, watching huge southern white right whales and their calves. Some, some, sometimes, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 of them. Lined up below you in this turquoise water, it's it's magnificent, uh, magnificent. Uh, um, it, it's it's an experience that everyone should have, and I'd highly recommend uh, you know getting out to see it. It's probably one of the best uh, you know marine wildlife uh, whale experiences uh, available in the world.
3: And if someone's moved, someone listening's moved to to go there, when's the best time to go for whale watching? What time of year? Well,
1: yeah, it's it's the middle of the year. Um, so the whales they move across southern Australia and, and they start banking up out at the head of the bite. To sort of July, August. Around that period is probably the best time. Um, it, it varies a little bit, but uh, you know that's where, that's where you'd aim. It's also that's also a cooler uh, point in the year, obviously.
3: Yeah, a bit and, more comfortable up uh, out, in the, out yeah, in the Nullarbor. Yeah, so
1: the out of in the Nullarbor in the summer is is, is very hot. So. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's one of one of the world's wonders, um, and I highly recommend you know people if they have a chance to to, to get out and uh, stand at the head of the bite around that time and and watch these amazing creatures with their calves. It's
3: yes, it's right, for sure. Right. And if people want to get involved in the campaign, uh, what can they do?
1: Yeah, well, have a look at the uh, the Wilderness Society South Australia Facebook page. Uh, but also the Great Australian Bite Alliance, which is a a huge platform of environmental groups now, both right across Australia and the world, uh, that are standing together, uh, you know, in opposition to what's being proposed. So that's the Great Australian Bite Alliance. There's a website and a Facebook page as well as the Wilderness Society of South Australia um, Facebook page uh, has plenty of updates and ways people can get involved.
3: Peter Owen, thank you so much for coming on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast this morning. It's been great to find out more about the bite and, and what's happening there.
0: Thanks very much for the opportunity. Thank you. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio.
3: Hello, it's Fiona Scott-Norman here, and I would just like to say
6: congratulations. You are doing something very important right now, and do you want to know what it is? You are listening to 3CR, Melbourne's most diverse and fascinating community radio station. And you know why it's important? Because diversity is important. Community is important. Community radio is very, very important. And you are a winner.
0: Archer Magazine, Australia's most inclusive publication about sex and gender, will launch their 11th issue at Arts Project Australia in Northcote this coming Friday, the 14th of December. Join us from 7.30pm for readings, performance, raffles, disco tunes and one of the most feisty and friendly dance floors in town. Tickets start at $5 and no one's turned away for lack of funds. For more information and to book tickets, head to facebook.com forward slash Archer magazine, a 3CR supporter.
4: Okay, one of them.
3: And uh, we were just speaking before the music to, uh, and before that announcement to Peter Owen uh, from the Wilderness Society. And what, if, if you haven't been able to get out to the bite and... Uh, if you won't be able to for a while, there is actually a really good documentary that the Wilderness Society made with a number of other organizations called JEDARA, and that's spelled J-E-E-D-A-R-A, uh, in which they took um, the Sea Shepherd uh, boat, uh, boat, I think it was the, um, sorry, I can't remember the name of the boat, but anyway, part of the, the Sea Shepherd um, fleet, I guess, up to... Um, the great Australian bite and there's amazing footage of the land and the country and also we also hear from Buna Lori, who's uh, one of the indigenous peoples who is responsible for the bite out there and uh, I mean it's just a beautiful um it's a beautiful film um yeah so it's actually it's the Steve Irwin is the name of the boat that went that went up yeah um, so yes, so, so do listen and uh, and I mean check out the bite and uh, have a look and see see that film because it's quite inspirational. Now coming up now we have um, an interview that I did earlier in the week on Tuesday with John Garrick, who's a senior lecturer in business law at Charles Darwin University. Now John's got a lot of experience. He's been in private legal practice, specializing in commercial law. Chinese commercial law reform, international comparative law. He's worked in um, legal practice and academia both in Hong Kong, uh, the Middle East, and in North America and Australia as well. So a good understanding of the international law perspective. And he recently published an article in The Conversation entitled Darwin Ports Sale is a Blueprint for China's Future Economic Expansion. So when we spoke, he he, um, also alerted me to an earlier article that he'd written, um, which was to do with and provided some background about um, general concerns about developing countries in the Pacific not being able to pay back their debts to China, so taking loans from China, not being able to pay their debts, um, and it's often called debt trap uh, diplomacy, so there's a lot of information around about that. So that was kind of the uh, context for him Then writing his second paper so let's hear what he has to say about uh, the debt trap diplomacy.
4: When the APEC summit was building up in Port Moresby there was really a lot of concern about some of the Pacific nations such as Tonga and Vanuatu simply getting themselves into a level of debt that they were never going to be able to repay when Sri Lanka defaulted. China took the port and 15,000 acres of surrounding waterfront acreage in return for the default. It became a pretty serious matter. Could this be done elsewhere? And that's the question, isn't it?
3: It just mirrors what the British did in Southeast Asia when they took oh, no. uh, Hong it, Kong it, it, for 99 years.
4: Absolutely, which makes it even more intriguing that uh, history repeats itself.
3: So Could you just explain China's Belt and Road policy?
4: China's uh, One Belt, One Road initiative is uh, one of Xi Jinping's signature uh, policies. It was announced about five years ago as a, an attempt to connect China to Europe right through Dushanbe and Samarkand, Tehran. Istanbul and right up to Moscow and uh, as far as to Rotterdam, and uh, that's the road. The Maritime Silk Road is the route that goes via the sea, via Colombo and Calcutta, uh, and connects to Africa as well. Nairobi and Chinese also have a very strong interest in the, in the port in Athens. It is part of China's uh, strategy to develop a global supply chain of ports, it goes with the Belt and Road strategy. In China's current five-year plan, there is a linkage of civilian development first, later uh, military uh, development uh, to go with it, to develop strategic support points to assist uh, China defending maritime channel security and uh, to control key waterways.
3: The recent announcement of a new sister city agreement between Darwin and the yoshou district in Guangzhou in China, has raised concerns in Australia.
4: That agreement is simply a municipal agreement between Darwin with the, an equivalent local government in the um, Yushu district in Guangzhou. It's not part of the Built and Road. But what's intriguing is that it was described in Chinese media as being a part of uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. It was built up into something of greater significance over there.
3: Whereas here, it's just one more sister
4: city. Absolutely correct. It's just another sister city arrangement. It was blown up into something beyond uh, what it was understood to be from this end. Also uh, it
3: comes after um, the Darwin port has been leased for 99 years.
4: Well the port was owned by the Northern Territory government and there was a local operator that was known as the Port of Darwin. They were aware that the future needs of the port would require substantial funds to upgrade it and the growing expectation that this port was going to have a more vital role to play uh, as a gateway to Asia uh, at the northern part of Australia. Requests were made, repeated requests to various uh, Commonwealth governments over the years for funding to upgrade the infrastructure of the port to meet the growing demand. The requests for funding were rejected. Uh, At the time, the Commonwealth Government Agency, which was uh, providing the feedback to the Northern Territory Government, was Infrastructure Australia, and they recommended privatisation. It went to the strongest bid, that was uh, from the Chinese-owned company Land Bridge. So how much did they pay? $506 million, with an understanding that the new operator would upgrade the facility.
3: Now, it seems to me that $506 million is really, it's not a lot of money to yes, buy a it's lease.
4: It's not a lot of money to buy a 99-year lease uh, over a strategic asset, uh, most certainly. But I, I guess on the other hand, if there's uh, embedded uh, clauses relating to uh, uh, upgrading the facility over time and for that facility to be uh, put to greater use, so, so, in
3: a sense, that was the, what they got the lease for, $506 million, But it was Correct. also with a proviso that, you know, the development that was required would happen, and that would be at the expense of the company that leased it, I, I gather from what you're saying.
4: Yeah, I, I don't know the detail of mm-hmm. that small print, I think you'd find that uh, there's commercial and uh, incompetence aspects to that because they're managing a, a long-term investment with uh, large borrowings to pull it all off.
3: If that's the kind of money you're looking at, the Commonwealth government's failure to support the the people of Darwin or that port and developing it was very short-sighted. Like Just one more example of rural Australia or remote Australia not getting the attention it deserves
4: i think that's a reasonable interpretation on that
3: but few questions were raised in canberra about the proposed lease of the port of darwin
4: the darwin port lease sale was approved by the department of defense and uh, my understanding is it was also screened by asio and the foreign investments review board it got the green light At the time, Malcolm Turnbull was grilled about this and he also endorsed the fact that the Foreign Investment uh, Review Board had cleared it. The other levels of government uh, in Canberra had also not seen fit to raise opposition to it. Undertaking this research, I I did speak to some uh, defence people uh, around Darwin and obviously there was a little bit of concern because Darwin does host US Marines. Here's an interesting dynamic to have on one side of town U.S. Marines that are based here and then on the other side of town the strategic asset, the port of Darwin, owned by a Chinese company for 99 years through its lease.
3: How did the U.S.? respond to the lease?
4: At the time uh, Barack Obama expressed surprise that this lease deal was done without any consultation with the American allies and it drew stronger rhetoric from the then Deputy or former Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage who said that he was stunned that Australia had blindsided the US with that lease in the sense that the forward planning for U.S. marine rotations was well underway. You have to admit that it does seem surprising that there was no consultation, but I don't think that it was at the time, back in uh, 2015, it wasn't seen as a a particular threat.
3: I mean, it does does make you feel like, you know, there's not a very good uh, China literacy within the federal government.
4: I can't really comment on that level of China literacy in the federal government. However, uh, I think there's a pretty keen awareness that uh, there's a critical balancing act to be, um, to be managed here, that there are strong tensions on both sides, and Australia's in a position where it doesn't want to offend either party you know, there's been a bit of indecision and a little bit of perhaps even clumsiness around the edges of managing that tension. I'm not sure it's a lack of China literacy, but more a growing awareness that, uh, there's a new role to be played by Australia in, uh, relationship between the US and China. How do we put our best foot forward in this is, is quite delicate. It shouldn't yes. be managed in a ham-fisted way. And, uh, perhaps there's not only risk that comes with it but also an opportunity for australia to have a, a constructive role in not exactly mediating this relationship we're, we're not powerful enough to do that but we are friends with both parties that is china's not our enemy and the us is a great ally so that on the one hand we've got a A very potent uh, trading partner our biggest trading partner and and on the other hand our most essential and vital ally and friend
3: and that's uh, John Garrick a senior lecturer in business law at Charles Darwin University and it sounds to me like uh, he thinks it's very important to to bring people together rather than to emphasize uh, distance but also you know some of the um, clumsiness of the whole negotiation around the port and uh, and the neglect of um, speaking with the United States. So whatever you feel about uh, the basing of um, marines on Australian soil, certainly conversations do need to happen. And uh, in the final point in his uh, paper, he said that uh, clumsiness and indecision do not serve Australia's interests well.
0: Definitely not. And that's a note and a half to end our show on. <laughs> um, you've been listening to Wednesday Breakfast. I'm Will. And
3: I'm Judith. And I'm
0: Dean. And I hope you have a lovely day, folks. Um, Next up is Stick Together. Stay
4: tuned. Hot day.
1: 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, NIBS, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast, produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.